0: We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at one dollar. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the Dow Jones just had its worst week since January. We closed the week at 17,568, down 518 points on the week. Friday's drop alone accounted for 163 points. You know, an interesting uh, news item, corporate earnings item that came out on Friday was Capital One. They're one of the nation's largest issuers of credit cards. And if the U.S. economy really were doing as well as everybody pretends, you would think credit card companies would be doing well because, A, people have jobs, the economy is growing, so they're not falling behind on their credit cards. In fact, they're using their credit cards to buy more things because they feel better about the economy. They're willing to shop. They're willing to use their credit card. So everything should be going well at Capital One. Instead, they came out with a huge earnings miss. The shares plunged. By twelve percent, a lot of the big banks came out and downgraded capital One. They also announced big layoffs, capital one laying off people almost a thousand layoffs and If you actually look at all of their numbers, one of the big losses was credit credit losses, one point one three billion versus seven hundred and four million in the same period last year so that's losses on bad debt, meaning people who use their credit cards to buy things. And they can't pay the money back. And so Capital One has to take a write-off. Now, if the U.S. economy really were getting better, that number would be going down. So if fewer people can repay their credit card bills, where's the recovery? To me, that's a sign of the economy weakening. In fact, if you look at all the economic data that's been coming out this year, it's all negative. Whatever it is, retail sales... Capital investment, industrial production, capital utilization. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All the economic measures that are normally rising when the Fed raises rates are now falling, every single one of them. In fact, there is no precedent for the Fed ever raising rates when all of its key economic indicators are going down. See, normally the Fed would try to fight that. By cutting rates, right, if all your economic indicators are falling and your economy is slowing down, the Fed would try to push against those forces. It would try to stimulate the economy. Instead, the Fed is saying, we're going to implement an economic sedative. We're going to try to slow down the economy with rate hikes, even though the economy is already slowing on its own. So in other words, the economy is going downhill and the Fed says, we're going to push it. Or, and not just the Fed, but that's what everybody expects. But probably the most interesting part of Friday's market action was this leak report from the Federal Reserve. This supposedly came online by accident. And what it showed is the economic forecasts of the Fed staffers. This is not the FOMC. These are the people that the Fed employs. And they make their projections. And then they share those projections with the FOMC. They don't crunch all the numbers themselves. They go around making speeches and stuff like that. So they have all these economists, all their staffers that do all that grunt work, and then they make their projections. Well, the projections came out, and first of all, the growth projections are way below what the Federal Reserve is publicly saying. So either they don't believe the work of their own staffers, in which case, why not just fire them if you think they're incompetent, or they believe it, but they're afraid to admit it. But now they're stuck with it because somehow this stuff ended up on the Internet. But let me go over some of the projections, which are so outrageous. First of all, the projections go all the way out to 2020. So the staffers are saying what the GDP is going to be, what inflation is going to be, what unemployment is going to be, and what interest rates are going to be every year from now until 2020. How the hell do they know? That's the most insane part of it. These idiots actually think they know what GDP growth is gonna be in 2020. They don't even know what it's gonna be in 2015. They're so far off in the projections of what GDP is in the year that they're making the projections. How can they, with a straight face, say, hey, this is what we think? I mean, basically, it's just a guess. Because if someone says, what is the GDP gonna be in 2020? What is unemployment gonna be? You're just guessing. So we're paying these guys to make guesses. And you know what? Their guesses stink. I mean, okay. Here, first of all, here's what they have for GDP. And by the way, I put this whole chart, I linked to an article on my Facebook page. So you can go and you can follow along with me and you can look at these numbers. But look at what they've got for real GDP. 2015, this year, they got 2.31, which I think is overly optimistic, but it's still way below the official forecast. For 2016, they have 2.38, slightly better. 2017, though, they have 2.17. And then it goes down. 2018, 1.76. 2019, 1.75. And 2020, 1.74. That means over the five-year period, they have the U.S. economy growing below 2% on average. Now, they're talking publicly about 3%, 4%, yet privately, the numbers that they have are showing under 2%. Now, if the Fed believes their staffers and economic growth is peaking out in 2015, 2016, and then slowing down to 1.74 by 2020. Why would the Fed be raising rates? Doesn't make any sense. What makes even less sense is their inflation numbers. They have the inflation rate for 2015 at 1.15, 2016 1.54, 2017 1.76, 2018 1.89, 2019 1.92, 2020 1.94. Not once they ever have the inflation rate even hitting their 2% target. Now, of course, it's ludicrous to assume that inflation is only going to be 1.94% a year in 2020. But that's their assumption. I mean, I think they just want to just say inflation is always below 2%. So they pick these numbers up because how can they possibly know? They're just saying, let's put, inflation, let's put a number in there that's somewhere below 2%. That's what they're doing. I mean, monkeys could do this. I mean, I wonder how much they pay these guys. What kind of economic training do they have? Anybody can, can make these guesses. And then they even have the core PCE. They, they even have that. And that's 1.33 this year, 1.52 next year, then 1.78 in 2017, 1.9 in 2018, 1.92 in, in 2019, and 1.94. It's nice to know that the core, the core PCE in the year 2020 is only going to be 1.94%. Doesn't make any sense. Now, here's their Fed funds numbers. They have interest rates, the Fed funds rate at 0.35 by the end of this year, which would imply maybe one rate hike. I guess right now the, the official rate is zero to 0.25. And so 0.35 implies one tiny rate hike, maybe. If the, But this is a projection. They might not do it. I, I still don't think they will. Now, look what they have in the Fed funds rate at the end of 2016, the end. that's still ridiculously low. That's only 0.26% above the ridiculously low rate that Alan Greenspan brought interest rates down to to create the housing bubble. Then by 2017, they only see rates going to 2.12, which means they raise rates 1% over the entire 2017. 2018, at the end of the year, they still only see rates at 2.8%. 2019, 3.1%. And 2020, 3.34. So even after five years of tightening, they've still only managed to raise rates by about 300 basis points, which would still leave them at historically low levels. But that shows you how little confidence the Fed has in the economy. They're predicting sub-2% growth for five years, inflation supposedly below their target, and that they're barely raising rates. They also predict the yield on the 10-year. They see it rising from 2.63% in 2015, all the way up to 4.2. That's the highest it gets five years from now, 4.2. And it doesn't get above 4% until 2019 when it hits 4.1. One of, the, one of the most ridiculous assumptions is unemployment. This is what these clowns at the Federal Reserve predict for unemployment. 5.34% this year, 5.24% next year, 518 in 2017, 515 in 2018, 515 in 2019, and 5.16 in 2020 when they're guessing these numbers i mean when they decided to put 5.15 i wonder which guy said hey let's tick it up a notch in 2020 let's make 2020 5.16 i mean how do they know they decided all of a sudden that unemployment is going to go up from 5.15 percent in 2019 to 5.16 percent in 2020 the whole thing is a joke but you know what it shows the unemployment rate really doesn't improve very much. It stays exactly where it is. So if Janet Yellen has been saying that we're not going to raise interest rates unless the, un- the employment picture improves, well, their own projections show that the unemployment rate doesn't go anywhere. So again, the only improvement she could be talking about is labor force participation, real wages, and part-time employment versus full-time. But if the economy is going to grow sub 2% for the next five years, We're not going to create new jobs or new full-time jobs. Wages aren't going to go up at this slow rate of growth and this low inflation that they believe is going to be there. So we're not going to have any wage growth. We're certainly not going to have any pickup in uh, labor force participation because this slow growth economy is not going to generate jobs. I mean, they are projecting the economy to grow over the next five years at a slower pace, slower pace than it grew over the preceding five years. So if the Fed kept interest rates at zero during those five years of stronger economic growth, why would the Fed now be raising interest rates when its own projections are calling for economic growth over the next five years to be slower? Everybody is saying the reason the Fed is going to raise rates is because the economy has reached escape velocity. We have liftoff. Well, by their own forecasts, the economy is stuck on the launch pad. There's no real liftoff here. So why would they be raising rates? And of course, the answer is they're not. And of course, these projections, I believe, are too optimistic because if they raise interest rates up to 3.34% by 2020, we would be in a recession and unemployment rates would be a lot higher than what they're projecting. And I think the inflation rate would also be higher. Because if we're in a recession, the Fed is going to launch QE4, and QE4 is going to mean a much weaker dollar and much higher consumer prices. So this whole forecast is a complete farce and a complete joke. None of it is going to, is true. But what it does show is that we got a bunch of fools at the Fed. We're wasting our money. We should fire all these staffers. We don't even need them. But obviously, the Fed is getting this information from their staffers. And then they're ignoring it, and they're painting a much rosier picture for the public about what they think the economy is going to do. Now, the question is, do they not believe their staffers? In which case, why don't they fire them and hire people that they believe are competent? Or maybe they believe them, but they don't think the public is ready for the truth, Jack Nicholson style. So they're lying because they know we can't handle the truth. Well, I don't think the markets can handle the truth. And that might be one of the reasons why the Dow was down so big on on Friday. But to me... The market really looks like it's putting in a top. Earnings are falling. Stock prices look like they're topping out. And so this market could really start to go down. The only thing that will stop it from going down is some talk by Janet Yellen to dial back the rate hikes and to open up the door officially to QE4. That's the only way the Fed can stop the market from going down. You know, I've read some articles that the real reason that the Fed wants to raise rates is because... They're afraid of uh, creating a stock market bubble. Well, you talk about closing the barn barn door. That ship has sailed, Janet Yellen. We already have a massive stock market bubble. So the time to worry about a stock market bubble was when you put interest rates at 0% in the first place. But again, creating a stock market bubble was what it was all about. The Fed wanted that, right? That's what Bernanke said. We want to create some wealth. We want trickle-down monetary policy. We want to create uh, a wealth effect from stock prices and real estate prices. The Fed is Frankenstein and this this recovery is their monster and it is out of control. If they keep talking about raising rates and the market tanks, well, now they're going to have to cut rates because we're going to be in a bear market. That's the reality. If they're worried about a stock market bubble and that's why they want to raise rates, they already have a stock market bubble. And if they raise rates, they're going to prick it. But the problem is just talking about raising rates, the air is already gushing out. So they're going to have to Blow air back in, and the only way they can do that is with with more QE. Now, another number that came out on Friday, which also confirms the slowdown in the economy, was the new home sales. Now, earlier in the week, we got existing home sales, which printed better than estimates. And again, I think the reason you're getting a, a pickup in in home sales is because people want to beat the, the Fed, right? They're trying to get in under the gun here. Uh, because the Fed's going to be raising interest rates, and therefore mortgages are going to be more expensive. So some of the fence-sitters are getting off the fence because they figure if they wait, they might not be able to afford the higher um, mortgage rates. But the new home sales are a more important barometer of the economy because when you sell an existing home, you don't necessarily create a lot of jobs. I mean, I guess if there's a lot of existing home selling, That does create some jobs in the realtor community because maybe more realtors are needed if more homes are being sold. Also, you know, potentially you buy a new home, maybe you remodel it a little bit. You know, sometimes people buy a house and they want to change things. Uh, They don't like everything that the previous owner had. So you could have some pickup in some construction for remodeling. Uh, Maybe they buy some new furniture. So there could be some, but there's far more employment that results from new home sales, particularly construction. Because, you know, there's a lot of high-paid jobs in the construction. And there's a lot of other work that goes into building a home. And, of course, then you have all the same ancillary jobs for realtors. And, of course, you have to furnish your new home. So much more economic activity associated with new home sales than existing home sales. Well, the number that came out for June was awful. And June should be, you know, this is a big selling month for new homes. Because a lot of people like to buy new homes over the summer. Because they don't want to change schools. They don't want to move during the school year. So they move during the summer. So they can enroll their kids in the new school uh, in the fall. So June, terrible number. They were looking for 550,000. The actual number was 482,000. They even revised down last, num- last month, May, from 546,000 to 517,000. They, they revised down the uh, the month before that as well. So you had two months where they revised down the home sales. The drop, the July plunge, was the biggest drop since November of 2014. They missed expectations by the most in a year. So again, another bad number that would indicate that the Fed is not going to be raising rates. Now, also there is an interesting statistic on new homes because of course as new home sales fell in the recent month, prices are continuing to rise. And in fact, I took a look at the medium new home price. This is not existing homes, but new homes, the median, median new home price relative to the median income. And it's 10 times, 10 times. So if you are an American citizen earning the median income, it's gonna take 10 years of your income to buy a house. Now, if you go back to 1950 and look at those numbers, it was only two times. I mean, about 2.2, you know, to be exact, but close to two. And in fact, today it's a little bit over 10. It's not quite exactly 10. I, I rounded down. So you needed 10 years of income to buy the median house today, or you need. But back in 1950, it was only two times. Think about that. Housing is now five times more expensive than it was in 1950. And what has the government been trying to do since 1950? It's been trying to make housing more affordable. They have agency, housing agency, Department of Housing. They have tax deductions to subsidize home ownership. They have Fannie Mae. They have Freddie Mac. They have the FHA. The government has a huge program designed to make housing more affordable for people, right, to reduce the cost of housing. And what has happened as a result? The cost of housing has exploded, skyrocketed. It's five times more expensive than it used to be. <laughs> you know, this shows you, everything the government does, not only does it fail, it achieves the opposite. See, failure would be if it still, only co- it still costs two years of your income to buy a house, right? The government says we're going to make housing more affordable. And instead, it stays the same, right? That would be failure. But if you're trying to make housing more affordable, but the result of your policy is that the cost of buying a house is five times higher, that's just not failure. You, got, you have to come up with a whole new word. That doesn't even exist to describe what that is. And it shows you, too, the big loss of standard of living of Americans. So, Because it means it, it you could buy a home with just two years of your income, right? which was the general rule of thumb. The rule of thumb used to be in the lending industry that a bank would, would loan you no more, no more than twice your annual income to buy a house, no more. That means many of the mortgages... For, were for a lot less than two times your income. That was kind of the maximum. If you wanted to borrow more than twice your income, they wouldn't let you. Now you want to buy a new home, the median new home on the medium income. You have no down payment, whereas Americans don't have any savings. You got to get a bank to loan you 10 times your annual income. Well, how the, What bank's going to do that, right? Well, only with a U.S. government guarantee will they do something that, that stupid. Although it also shows that even with guarantees, I don't think somebody will do something that stupid, which means that the medium income earner can no longer afford the medium home. They could afford it in 1950 before the government tried to make housing more affordable. They're priced out of the market now. You have to earn a lot more than the median income to buy the median home. That's why home ownership is what, 20, 30 year lows? That's why most people that earn the median income are renting that home. Because they can't afford to buy it now, thanks to government policies that were designed to make housing affordable. Even if you've got two people working, that means let's say you have a husband and wife both working, and assuming they make they each make the median income, it takes five times their combined incomes to buy that house. Five times their you know five times their annual income. Whereas a single guy working with a stay at home wife in 1950, it only took two years of his income. So it shows the collapse of real wages. Uh, the increase in the cost of housing, the reduction in our standard of living. America was a much wealthier nation back in 1950 than it is today, even with all our technological advancements, because we've increased the size of government so much that we're barely treading water. I mean, imagine where America would be today if we didn't have the benefits of industrialization or technology, all the things that the free market gave us to help offset all the damage that the government gave us. If it wasn't for that, I mean, we would have been finished. But imagine what our standard of living would be life if we got to enjoy all the benefits of capitalism without all the negatives of socialism that were weighing us down. If we still had the same level of government that existed back in 1950, or better yet, 1920, if we had that level of government with today's technology, in fact, we wouldn't even have today's technology. If government had remained that small, The entire time, our technology would probably be far more advanced than it is today. So we would have tomorrow's technology with yesterday's government. Another really interesting story, though, on the week, which I think is, again, going to contribute uh, to weakness in the economy, is New York State passing a fast food minimum wage of $15 an hour. This has got to be one of the nuttiest laws that you could have passed. It's a minimum wage of $15 that only applies to people who work or for fast food chains where they have at least 30 or more uh, restaurants. That, that, then if you're going to do this, if you're going to operate a, a fast food franchise and you're a franchisee and you know there's at least 30 or more restaurants, then you cannot hire anybody unless you're willing to pay them $15 an hour. Which is crazy. Now, it doesn't go into effect immediately. It's staged in over a few years so they can lessen the damage and spread it out. But the, the uh, New York City is going to be on a faster path. I think by 2018 or 2017, they're, they're going to have to be at $15 per hour. Now, you know, there's all this celebrating going on. I mean, I'm looking at these news reports. Fast food workers in New York are, are ecstatic. They think they're about to get a raise. They're not about to get a raise. A lot of them are about to get pink slips. Just because the government raises the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it doesn't mean your boss has to pay you $15 an hour. You can't force anybody to pay you anything. You have to earn your money. But what the government is going to force your boss to do is to choose between paying you $15 an hour or firing you. And I got bad news for most of the people currently working in fast food in New York State you are going to be fired. So you're not going to get a raise. You're going to have to get a job at the minimum wage outside of the fast food industry. Or you're going to have to work for a restaurant that is not part of a chain. Those are going to be your only jobs. Because what is the government doing? The government is actually saying, in order to work at like a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Pizza Hut, in order to work at one of those companies, you have to be skilled enough to Qualify for $15 an hour. So what's going to happen is the brightest, the most skilled people, and again, we're not talking about highly skilled. I mean, you're not doing rocket science at $15 an hour. But clearly, somebody who's capable of convincing an employer to pay him $15 an hour or her $15 an hour has more to offer than somebody who's only capable of convincing an employer to pay $8 an hour. So what's going to happen since the the fast food chains are going to have to pay people $15 an hour, they're going to only be looking at people who they believe uh, are worth that that amount of money. And so now they're going to have a whole new class of workers because there are plenty of people right now who don't want to work at McDonald's because the pay isn't high enough. Let's say somebody works someplace and they're making $13 an hour, right? More than they can make if they're at McDonald's. Well, If they're still making $13 an hour at that other employer and that other employer isn't required to pay them $15 an hour because the minimum wage doesn't apply there. Well, now that person who's earning $13 an hour is going to go apply for a job at McDonald's. And he's probably going to get it over the guy that's currently only earning $8 an hour. Because if that guy was skilled enough to get $13 an hour, he wouldn't currently be working at McDonald's for $8 an hour. So McDonald's is going to fire that guy. And the other guy is going to go work at at McDonald's. This is what's going to happen. So you're going to force all these fast food franchises to fire their current workforce and replace them with people that are more skilled. Now, of course, if they do hire people who are more skilled, maybe they're faster at their job, maybe they're more efficient, so they won't need to hire quite as many people as they have now. They'll have fewer people that work faster and more efficiently, right? They're going to do that. But of course, also, you're going to have a bigger move towards automation in these fast food chains where they eliminate workers altogether and replace them with order kiosks and, and you know, just computers uh, and, and, and machines that, that do the cooking and, and things like that. But also what New York State is doing with this ridiculous law is they're actually uh, creating a benefit for the mom and pop type restaurant. Right. If you're a fast food restaurant and you're independently owned and you're not part of a big chain, this new minimum wage law doesn't apply. So you're free to hire people at the current minimum wage, which means that you can price your products cheaper than the, than the company that's forced to pay the higher minimum wage. So you're gonna have a competitive advantage. So I think after this law is passed, I don't know if anybody's gonna want to open up a fast food franchise in, uh, in in New York City unless they can do it, you know, completely automated. But these jobs too are gonna be, you know, the cream of the crop jobs. I mean, you're gonna have to have a connection maybe to get a job. At, at some of these fast food restaurants. You know, they're going to probably go to some of these chicer restaurants. You go to restaurants in New York and they'll have hostesses. And they're very, you know, usually they're young, attractive women. And I'm sure they're getting paid more than what McDonald's pays because their job is to really stand there and and just kind of look pretty and and bring you to your table. Well, you know, I don't know what they make. Maybe those gals are getting paid $13 an hour. I don't know. But now they're going to want to work at McDonald's. Because McDonald's has got to pay $15 an hour, so they're going to start hiring, you know, more attractive people, you know, more articulate people, people that have other qualities that maybe they weren't that important, but if they're going to have to pay $15 an hour, well, yeah, why don't I get that instead of hiring an unattractive person that that doesn't really speak English very well? Maybe I'll just hire a thin, attractive person who is more articulate, right? I mean, so you know, so who who gets hurt, right? Poor people, minorities, and, and, and you end up having uh, fewer opportunities, right? And of course, kids, why hire a high school kid who's 17 years old, 16 years old? If I'm going to pay $15 an hour, let me get one of these college grads. Let me get someone who's 25, who's got more experience. You're destroying. Now, you don't need. People are going to be overqualified, right? You're going to have people cooking French fries that are overqualified for the job. But unfortunately, that's all this law requires. It requires you to, to hire people that have skills that, where they would be better off working someplace else. You're, you're taking a guy that's worth $11 and he's doing a job that's worth eight, or probably not even eight, because if there was no minimum wage, those jobs might pay three or four. But you're taking somebody out of his highest and best use job, and you're forcing him uh, to do a job that's beneath him because you're forcing the government to pay more than the job where he's ideally qualified. So all of this... Leads to an unoptimal outcome for the economy because it's an inefficient use of scarce labor resources, and of course, it creates lots of unemployment. It destroys all the entry-level jobs. It leads to higher prices. It is a terrible, terrible law. Yet somehow, the politicians in New York and in New York City have embraced this thing, and all the headlines is like, "This is great!" And I'm, I'm you know, I see articles about other cities. I read one about Florida where they're so excited. And there was a woman saying, this is great. Now it has to happen down here. We need a raise too. I said, look, if you want to raise, work harder, increase your skills, make yourself more valuable so you earn a raise. Don't try to get the government to force your boss to give you a raise that you don't deserve. And remember, I said earlier, your boss isn't forced to give you a raise. He's just forced to choose between giving you a raise or firing you. So be careful what you wish for, fast food workers, because when your boss is forced to make that choice, there is a very good chance he will choose firing you. And now you're gonna have to get another job. And you know what? You might even make less than you do now. And of course, you know there are a lot of people who are working part-time at McDonald's who think, oh, this is great. You can lose those jobs too. You cannot just force a company to pay you $15 an hour if the job that you're doing doesn't deliver anywhere near $15 an hour versus a value to your employer because you're forcing your employer to lose money. And employers are not in business to lose money. Just like workers aren't working to lose money, they want to get paid. Employers want to get paid too. They need a profit. And if the government forces a loss on them because they increase their labor costs, they have to do something about it. Now, I also want to talk about the gold market. Gold prices continue to be under pressure throughout the week, hitting new, I think, what, five or six-year lows uh, until Friday. Gold was down about 10 12 bucks early in the morning. And by the end of the day, it was up about $10, just back around $1,100. This was uh, potentially a reversal. It, it wasn't that spectacular a turnaround that I could say, aha, the bottom is here for sure. But this week sure did look like capitulation. And Friday's action was constructive, the fact that we turned around with a weak stock market, the Dow being down 160 some odd points, and the gold market being higher. The dollar still gaining strength against the commodity currencies with the weakness in oil and uh, and gold. But interestingly enough, uh, the European currencies are still trading relatively well. The euro just below 110, but way off the lows of 105. Pound sterling... Uh, has been acting very strong against the dollar, so there are beginning you know there's we 're beginning to see cracks in the dollar's armor and if the stock market continues to roll over that 's going to expose a lot more cracks in the dollar's armor in fact i don't think the dollar is armored at all it 's just about speculators not understanding what 's going on you know it 's interesting too if you think about the introduction of the euro right when the euro first came out in um, 1999, January of 1999, there was a lot of skepticism that it would work. And it actually fell down about 82 cents by mid to late 2000. And so the Euro was down over 30% in a year. And everybody was saying, oh, it's not gonna work. So remember back then, right? People were afraid of the Euro. They were afraid of Asia because of the Asian economic crisis a couple of years earlier. So the US was the only game in town. Everybody wanted to buy the dollar. Because we weren't Europe, we weren't Asia. Same thing as they're saying today. Whatever our problems are, you know, we're, we're, we're doing better than everybody else. You know, we had budget surpluses under Clinton. We had this new era. We had the new economy, the tech boom. Everybody wanted the U.S. Everybody was scared of Europe, just like today. Just like today, they're afraid of Asia. You know, defaults too. We had the Russian debt default going on back then, or I think it was '98 or whatever it was. I mean, so you got people worried about. Uh, Russia. You got people worried about Asia like they were back then. They're worried about the euro. The euro has now dropped uh, from its peak of about 160 down to now where it is 110. It's about a similar percentage drop. But interestingly enough, when everybody was the most bearish on the euro in uh, late 2000, when it was 82, in the next uh, eight years, seven years, the euro doubled, doubled in value. There was so much negativity on it, and then it doubled in value. So there's been a lot of negativity on the euro again. And to me, it looks like it's bottomed. And if it couldn't make new lows on the Greek situation uh, with all that uh, negativity, it's probably bottomed up. And that's probably the case for gold, too. Right. You have all these negative comments about gold. It's going to keep on falling, just like they thought the euro was going to keep on falling. In fact, it was just reported on Friday that hedge funds for the first time ever, ever, are now net short the gold market. That has never happened now normally when we get the biggest rallies in gold it's when the hedge fund long position is at a very low point where very few hedge funds are betting on gold but there's never been a time where hedge funds have on net been short there's been some funds that have been short but the longs typically outnumber the shorts so this is the most bearish the hedge funds have ever been ever or at least since they've been compiling these statistics right so they don't you know on on gold. So to me, that's a good contrarian indicator. And of course, gold stocks, if you look at gold stocks, they've never been this cheap relative to the price of gold ever. Not even in 1999, 2000, at the end of a 20 year bear market, at the peak of the new economy bubble with a dollar index at 120. People thinking gold was going to just continue to fall. And why wouldn't they? It had fallen for 20 years. It was at 800 in 1980, and it was down at 260 in 2000. Why would anybody have thought that that 20-year downtrend was going to reverse? Even the gold mining companies didn't believe in gold, right? They were all hedging. Even though gold was at 260, they were still selling their production forward. The gold miners were bearish on gold. Everybody was bearish. Yet gold stocks back then were more expensive. Than they are today they were more valuable than they are today not only relative to gold but most gold stocks are actually lower in price today in price even though gold was 260 then and it's 1100 now gold stocks have lower prices now lower prices than they had then in fact i saw that the previous record for how cheap gold stocks were relative to the price of gold was the day the japanese bombed pearl harbor Because I guess gold spiked up. Everything went down. And for a brief moment in time, gold stocks got really cheap relative to the price of gold. Well, you know what? They're cheaper now. And nobody bombed us. We're not about to go to World War II. This is just sentiment. This is just short selling. This is just capitulation. People throwing in the towel, throwing out all the babies with the bathwater. Gold stocks are trading at ridiculously, ridiculously low unprecedented valuations relative to the current price of gold. And to me, again, this is a great sign that this is a huge washout in this market. Now, did we bottom out on Friday? It is too soon to tell. It is possible. But I think people who are selling gold and particularly gold stocks down here are making a colossal mistake, maybe an unprecedented mistake, because when this sell-off ends, the rally is going to be fierce, in my opinion, and prices will rise so quickly that the people who sold out will not be able to buy back their stocks anywhere near where they sold them. And these hedge funds that are short, they're going to be trapped. There is going to be the mother of all short squeezes. And the interesting part about this is all this gold that has been dumped on the market. All this gold that used to be warehoused in GLD, it's all been sold. Who bought it? I think China bought it. They might be lying about how much gold they have. And that's great because they keep on buying it. And I think other central banks are buying up this gold that all the speculators are selling. So where's the gold going to come from when they want to buy it back? It's not going to be there. They're going to have to pay through the nose to buy back that gold. In fact, you can look at all these stories. The U.S. Mint just had, I think, its best uh, day or month in years. The Perth Mint is reporting the same thing. The physical gold market is strong And increasing, even as the price is going down, the selling is not coming from the real gold market. It is the paper market. It is the speculators. It is the leveraged speculators making bets on the future price of gold by selling gold that they don't own and they can't deliver. And so that is an accident waiting to happen. And I am not going to shed any tears for uh, the shorts who get bloodied in this accident. But I think it is a great opportunity for real investors that understand what's going on to buy the stocks that these speculators are unloading. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold.